and uh, welcome all of you, uh, Church of the Good Shepherd. I'm so glad that you are here and you have uh, come to join us in this time of worship. I know it's a season in which people are unsure and uncertain, and I think it's a real credit to you uh, that you made uh, the effort and the time to come and be a part of it. Mark 2:27, and he said to them, "The Sabbath was made for man, not man." for the Sabbath. Let us pray. God, our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we come before you in this our time of need to sit at your feet, to listen to your word. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As you know, this uh, is the year 2020 of uh, a designated year of personal discipleship. It's been passed down by the bishop to the diocese, and in particular, that's what uh, we are hoping to do. And so I'm preaching this series called Perfect Ten, because in older days, their, uh, discipleship was known by a different term. They used the term catechesis, which may, basically means instruction. And, you know, you would train especially children Uh, in the Christian faith by teaching them the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and then the Lord's Prayer. And so through the year, we're going to do a couple of sermon series, one from Ten Commandments, and then the second half of the year from the Lord's Prayer. And then we're going to teach the Apostles' Creed through our Christian education program. But uh, in particular, we want to look at the Ten Commandments. And as you know, if you read the Bible, nowhere does it say Ten Commandments. Rather, it talks about the ten words, and the technical term for that is the Decalogue. And uh, that's what we are looking at, and I've entitled it Perfect Ten because the psalmist tells us the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. But what's the purpose of the law? Peter Leithart, who's a Reformed pastor, theologian, author, he has written a book on the Ten Commandments, which is interesting and actually a very useful book. He says this, The law exposes our sin, it restrains the unruly, but also provides a guide to life. But at the end of the day, Jesus is the heart and soul of the Decalogue. The the Ten Commandments ultimately point us to Jesus. And uh, as I've started this series, you understand that's really the focus of uh, uh, the Ten Commandments You know, it begins, of course, with that prologue or or the introductory word, which says, I am the Lord, which is in the Hebrew, Yahweh, I am the Lord, your God. And in the first couple of commandments, you know, he says, no idolatry. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't have a graven image. Uh, And then last week, as uh, Evangeline was sharing, you know, no hypocrisy, taking the name of the Lord in vain. One of the ways we do that is we name the name of Christian, but we live in a way that does not reflect Christ. You know, and that's really hypocrisy. But we come now to the fourth word. And the fourth word is on the Sabbath. Why is the Sabbath made for man? Why is it made for humankind? Why did Jesus say that? If you are looking at the news, of course, Everything in the news is now filled with uh, news about the coronavirus and how it's spreading and the things that are happening. You know that in uh, Wuhan itself, lots of people have died. I think the, uh, the death toll is approaching 800 already. 
Uh, that's all of China, not just Wuhan. But in particular this week, there's a story of a, a, a medical personnel who died. Now, some articles say it was a doctor, but uh, South China Morning Post, I think, I tend to <laughs> believe their information's a bit more uh, accurate because they're closer to it. You can't quite read here. It says, Chinese hospital pharmacist, age 28, he died. But he died not because of the virus. He died because he worked 10 days straight. He was a pharmacist during the day. He would go and he would uh, do his job in the hospital. Then at night, he took on responsibilities at one of the toll booths to check motorists going by, check their temperature. And so he was working very hard for 10 days. And I don't know if he had underlying heart condition or whatever the case may be. He died from overwork. And I think we know that is entirely possible. But if I were to you know, roll back the calendar almost a year ago, the news that was filling our newspapers in Singapore was also, in a sense, regard to work. This is an article which says 92% of working Singaporeans are stressed. Right? This was in March of last year. There was a study that was done. The, now, a lot of working people are stressed. Around the world, the average is 84, but Singapore, it's 92%. And, you know, uh, not only that, later on, about middle of the year, I think July, this is in the Straits Times, Singapore spends $3.1 billion on stress-related illnesses annually. Every year, $3.1 billion are spent treating uh, stress-related illnesses. And it's not just the working who are stressed. This one, you know, more teens in Singapore seeking help at IMH for school stress. And I think it's not unfamiliar to us. Many of us maybe are part of this statistic, and we understand uh, these realities. But you know what was even more surprising to me was this. Work stress, I understand. Study stress, I understand. There's leisure stress also. Because Sentosa Development Corporation ran a study and it says, one in two Singapore residents feel stressed out by the thought of doing nothing. <laughs> so even leisure also, you get stressed. You know, you tell them, hey, relax lah, lepak in one corner, they say, wow, stress, cannot. <laughs> they need to work. And that's the kind of society we live in, and it's in that context. You know, God says to His people, remember the Sabbath. That's what the fourth word is. And in a sense, I think he's saying to us, remember to relax. That's my title of my sermon is, is to relax. But let's look at the commandment itself. Exodus 20, uh, verses 8 to 11. It reads like this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Now, if you look at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, the Decalogue, you'll notice that eight of them begin, you shall not. So, in a sense, with a negative. 
There are only two that have positives. The first is this one, remember the Sabbath, is this one. And the next is the one that I'm going to cover next week, honour your father and your mother, are the two positive uh, words. But the rest are negatives. And I think it's significant. If you look at this, you know, when God gave this commandment, He rooted it in the reality of creation. Because you see there in in verse 11, he says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. That God himself took a Sabbath. That the Sabbath was rooted in creation. And it's, it's, it's a principle that actually runs right throughout the Scripture. In fact, God instituted the Sabbath for the people of God long before he gave the law. Do you know this? If you turn in your Bibles to Exodus uh, 16, you will see a story of the giving of manna, where God fed the people of God in the wilderness. And this was long before the law was given. Now, let me um, um, take us through the passage in Exodus 16. I'm reading from verses 2 onwards, and I'll skip some verses as we move along for us to get the gist of the story. And there too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around, pots filled with meat, and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. Israelites sound sort of like Singaporeans. Have, complain. Don't have, also complain. Right? They were grumbling in Egypt, you know, oh, this burden is too heavy on us. We are slaves. And they complain. And God heard their cry and delivered them. Then they get into the wilderness, oh, not enough to eat. Complain. But I'm not trying to make light of the reality that they were going through a tough time. But then the passage goes on to tell us, then the Lord said to Moses, look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. Each day, the people can go out and pick up as much food as they need for that day. I will test them in this to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. You know, so God rained manna down because He was trying to not just test them. I think it was discipleship taking place in the desert. This is a people that is newly formed, a new nation as it were. And they are to be called his people. And he realized, you know, they've been living in Egypt all their life. So the ways of the Egyptians, the culture in which they lived, had uh, so permeated their being, right? You've heard that saying, you can take the people out of Egypt, but sometimes you also need to take Egypt out of the people. And God did that in them. In some ways, I believe that wandering in the wilderness was a, a time of formation for them, a time of discipleship for them. But it goes on, and on the sixth day, after they have gathered all the food uh, and uh, they prepare it, there will be twice as much as usual. And we'll skip ahead now to verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the Israelites' complaints. Now tell them, in the evening you will have meat to eat, because God sent quail. So it wasn't just bread. And in the morning you'll have all the bread you want. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And he goes on then in verse 13, That evening vast numbers of quail flew in and covered the camp. 
And the next morning, the area around the camp was wet with dew. When the dew evaporated, a flaky substance as fine as frost blanketed the ground. Israelites were puzzled when they saw it. What is it? They asked each other. They had no idea what it was. And in the Hebrew, what is it is the word manna. Okay, and that's why they named it manna eventually. And Moses told them, it is the food the Lord has given you to eat. These are the Lord's instructions. Each household should gather as much as it needs. Pick up two quarts for each person in your tent. So the people of Israel did as they were told. Some gathered a lot, some only a little. You know, it's like, it sounds like typical Singaporeans. They were told what their quota was. But some took more than they needed. Maybe it's a family like mine. You need a lot more if you live in my family. <laughs> you know, in some families like yours, I look at your size, I think you all need half of what we need <laughs> to sustain. But that's what happened. But when they measured it out, everyone had just enough. The Lord provided enough for what they needed. And even what they want, I would suggest. Those who gathered a lot had nothing left over. Those who gathered only a little had enough. Each family had just what it needed. And Moses told them, do not keep any of it until morning. But guess what? Right? They are human and they behave as humans do. But some of them didn't listen. Typical Singaporean behavior, right? <laughs> Government say, there's enough toilet paper. No, go and buy more. <laughs> you know, they don't listen. And some kept some of it until morning, but by then it was full of maggots and had a terrible smell. And Moses obviously was then angry with them. And I skip ahead. And after this, the people gathered food morning by morning, each family according to its need, and they picked it up. And on the sixth day, it says there, they gathered twice as much as usual, four quarts for each person instead of two. Then all the leaders of the community came and asked Moses for an explanation. Why do we collect two? You know, these first six days we see you collect too much, the next day it spoils. Why do we need to collect double the portion on the sixth day? And here is the uh, Sabbath principle that God was teaching His people. He told them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow will be a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath day set apart for the Lord. So bake and boil as much as you want today and set aside what is left for tomorrow. God supernaturally preserved the food. What could not last overnight now was able to last for two days because God was teaching them an important principle. So sure enough, they did it. And they found that it didn't uh, uh, have maggots. It didn't uh, turn rotten. And they ate the food. Uh, uh, eat this food, Moses said. For today is a Sabbath day dedicated to the Lord. There will be no food on the ground today. You may gather food for six days, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. There will be no food on the ground that day. Again, instruction given, right? What happened? Some of the people went out anyway on the seventh day, but they found no food. Right? These are the people, if they had gone to NTUC, clear off the shelves of all the instant noodles and rice. <laughs> That's human mentality. I, you know, so don't uh, get down on Singaporeans' behavior. Kiasuism is not confined to any nationality because the Israelites were the same. 
And the Lord asked Moses, How long will these people refuse to obey my commands and instructions? They must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you. That the Sabbath, right from the beginning, was given as a gift to His people. And that's why He gives you a two-day supply on the sixth day, so there will be enough for two days. On the Sabbath day, you must each stay in your place. Do not go out to pick up food on the seventh day. Now, I think you notice I've been reading from the New Living Translation. It puts it in much more uh, uh, plain English and easier for us to um, relate to and understand. So we see that God uh, gave them this Sabbath principle even before He gave the law. And that's why when He gave the command in uh, Exodus 20, He told them, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And that word holy, of course, means set apart. Consecrate that day. Don't use it for anything else. Don't make it like any other day. Have a special day that is set apart. And the reason for that is this. Peter Leithart, again, in his book on the Ten Commandments, says it well. That's why I quote him. He says, Sabbath serves as a weekly recognition of human limitations and God's generosity. The Sabbath is a weekly reminder that we as human beings are finite. That our efforts can only take us so far. But that God ultimately is a gracious God and a generous God and a God that takes care of us. And basically it tells us that everything we have, we have received from God. That's what we say, right, in the communion service at the offertory centers. All things come from you and of our own do we give you. Which is our, our understanding in giving of our tithes and offerings. You know, we, why we are generous is because it's not ours to begin with. It's what God has given us and we give back a portion because we are grateful for His bounteous provision that everyone has enough. But think about it, you know, this was in real contrast to the culture they had come out of. You know, God was saying to them, I, the Lord your God, I am the one who is at work and I give you a gift of rest and of leisure for you to recharge, for you to... Uh, renew yourself and, you know, for you to relax. Whereas in the culture they had just left, the mentality was this, the gods make you work as human beings so that you can serve their divine leisure and so that they can rest. And this was, you know, a real upside-down way of looking at things and how God uh, taught them who they are as His people. You remember when I uh, preached the first sermon on the first commandment, that ultimately God is who you trust and believe in with your whole heart. It's uh, taken from what Martin Luther said in his large catechism. A God is that to which we look for all good and in which we find refuge in every time of need. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe Him with our whole heart. Three weeks ago when I started, I didn't know that there was this health crisis that it's going to meet us. And I think, you know, the Lord has brought this series for us to understand who our God is, who it is that we believe and trust in. 
So because that's how we understand why Sabbath was given to us, may I suggest to you that if we fail to keep the Sabbath, we fail to observe the Sabbath, it speaks of a failure in our hearts to believe and trust in God. You know, not just a belief, fail to trust in God, fail to trust and believe in His Word. Fail to trust and believe that this is a God who is for us. Fail to believe and trust that He is God and we are not. That if we don't see uh, this Sabbath principle and understand what it means, it's so easy for us to uh, lose sight of who God is in our life. Now, I take us back to the commandment itself because, you know, this commandment had a lot packed into it. And in verse 10 itself, he says, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. And he then, uh, you know, the, word, the number seven has, has divine <laughs> importance. He then lists seven categories of people who need to cease from work. And actually, it's comprehensive, all right? He says, on the day, no one in your household may do any work. No one in your household includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. Think about that for a moment. Translating it, in a sense, to our own contemporary understanding. And I'm speaking to us who are workaholics. There's a tendency on an off day, you know, you will pick up your phone and check your email. And the temptation to do what you need to do. But then you go beyond that. You know, they talk about the rise of the gig economy. I know people who have second and third jobs, right? Finding an opportunity to earn a little bit extra income to, by driving uh, a Gojek. Oh, you know, setting up an e uh, uh, um, commerce store on Carousel. And now, not putting any of that down. But if that begins to eat into your uh, time, your day of rest, you need to ask yourself, why are you doing that? Is it because your mentality is, and I know all of us have financial pressures, but you doubt God's provision for you? You think to yourself, if it's to be, it's up to me. That there is no trust in the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Last week, Evangeline apologized that she sounded judgmental. I'm not going to apologize and I am going to sound judgmental. Because it says there also, your sons and your daughters need to rest. Sons and your daughters, I don't know, some of you are, your sons and daughters are grown up. You think to yourself, they rest too much. Every day also resting. <laughs> I'm not talking about that. But there are sometimes we find ourselves as parents signing them up for tuition classes, enrichment classes, filling the entire weekend such that they have absolutely no rest every day of the week. And I want to ask you, now I know it's not necessarily true of all of you. Sometimes your kids ask for it, but it doesn't mean that you should give it to them. That they need to understand that they too need a day of rest. 
Now, if they are not doing anything the rest of the week and then they only study on Sunday, that's a different story. That's a different thing you need to address altogether. But you have six days of the week to do that. You need to take the seventh day to rest. And sometimes as parents, I know why we, we are motivated to do things like that. Because we want our children to succeed. Because we, we are not confident that, you know, if they don't succeed academically, that their future will be secured. But I ask you this. In whose hands is their future? Is it in ours as parents? We have a responsibility, yes. But does that mean we drive them to the point where, you know, the level of stress that's there is become apparent within our society? We need to ask ourselves, you know, who is God? Who is it that we trust and believe in? And male and female servants, and I know not many of us are employers. Some of us are. If you are an employer, can you make sure that your employees have a day of rest? Yeah, I understand sometimes it's not exactly uh, uh, the same day, but every six days, give them one day off. And all of us who are employees say, yes, amen, pastor, preach to my boss. <laughs> uh, you send them the link to this uh, recording and then you, you know, see if they get the hint or not. But... There are many of us who are employers in a way which we forget in that we have uh, domestic workers who work in our home. And we, you know, sometimes don't give them the day off. I know now it's mandated and, and it, it's done, but I know that the employers find ways to skirt around that. And, and I know the motivation. I understand it. You know, I've, I've talked to people before and they say, oh, you know, I let them go out and do their own thing. Yeah, they rest, but they rest in the house. They cannot go out. Why? Otherwise, they find bad company and get led astray. And I know that is a very real thing, and I'm not dismissing that concern. But ultimately, who is in charge of their life? Who's in charge of your household? Who takes care of them and of you? And may I, may I suggest, you know, the biblical principle is that you disciple your entire household doesn't mean just your children, but all those who live under your roof. You know, and if you've done your duty and responsibility, I believe you can help lead them uh, down the path of righteousness, hopefully. But nonetheless, no matter what happens, at the end of the day, we place them in the Lord's hands. And, you know, the Sabbath says that. And then it ends, the livestock and the foreigners living amongst you. Basically, what he's saying is this is the inherent design by the Creator. It's a, a creation design. That even animals need rest. All creatures. And even non-Christians, even though they may not be Christians and worship God, they also need rest. That this rest is built into how we are made. Physical, emotional, and spiritual rest. So what does this mean? I really should have pointed it out from the start, but I think it's appropriate to point it out here and now. I told you in the Bible when it talks about the Ten Commandments, it talks about the Ten Words. Who are these Ten Words directed to? You say, yes, to the people of God. In a sense, yes, it's true. But forgive me if I dig a little deeper into the language, into the Hebrew that's written here. You know, it says, you shall, you shall not, you, 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 the word you is used a lot. Now in the English, you doesn't distinguish whether it's you, singular, you, plural. You, male, you, female. 
right? The, the, the English language doesn't have that. So sometimes when we read it in the English, we, we lose the sense of what God was trying to say. But if you look at the Hebrew, the word you is actually in the masculine second person singular. In other words, it's directed to an individual who is a male. And may I suggest to you, and this is what biblical scholars tell us, it is God the Father speaking to His Son, Israel. So there is a measure, yes, it's individual, but it's collective also, it's the people of God as a whole, but it's a word that is spoken to His Son, Israel. And if you read through the Old Testament, you see the rest of the law in Exodus and then Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Uh, you will see that this Sabbath principle is built into the entire culture. They are told, you know, when you go and you plant your crops, you have six years to do it. On the seventh year, the land must rest. And, you know, on and on and on, it talks about that. And it talks about how after seven cycles of seven, if you've acquired any property, right? Seven times seven is what? 49. In the 50th year, there is the year of Jubilee, in which all land reverts back to the original owner. The Sabbath principle is that, you know, none of you are allowed to accumulate more than you really need. That everyone needs to have enough. If, if the people of God and if we had truly followed this principle, we will never have this problem of the 1% owning the majority of the world, of this huge income gap that we now see. You know, by God's design, it was never meant to be that way. That the Sabbath principle was made for our well-being, for our flourishing, where we don't exploit the land, where we don't exploit one another, but we put our trust in a God who provides and provides enough, more than enough. And we see that this principle became such a part of the uh, uh, a Jewish um, culture that it carried on right through Jesus' day. Those who have studied the history and the literature of Second Temple Judaism, which is a time in which Jesus lived, found that there were two uh, things which the Jewish people were very particular about. Number one were dietary laws. What you can eat, what you cannot eat. You know, sometimes I wonder if, you know, we continued these dietary laws, we probably won't have SARS or coronavirus, you know, no vats in your soup <laughs> and the like, uh, certainly. But nonetheless, those dietary laws are very important. But we also see that there were Sabbath laws that they were very interested in. And actually, if you read the New Testament, you'll see it. Right, even right through the Gospels and into the Book of Acts, especially when they began meeting with uh, uh, non uh, the Gentiles who had become Christians, you know there was a problem with what they ate and what we are allowed to eat as Jewish people. But also, this passage we read in the Gospel, it's like a confluence that they were eating and it was on the Sabbath, and the 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 religious leaders came down hard on Jesus, and that's why Jesus had to say the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Because, you know why? This is the nature of law-keeping when we do it on our own terms. It turns into a self-justification project. Where, now, hear me, I'm not saying we disobey the law of God. That's not what I'm saying. 
But there are times when we can become a people who are so fixated on the letter of the law, we miss the intent of the law. That you keep it, you know, in terms of uh, um, legalistically keep the law, but in keeping the law, you violate its very principle. Right? As I've shown you, that the Sabbath principle was ultimately to set prisoners free, to make sure that everyone had enough. And yet they would bind the hands of the people, you know, that you, you, when Jesus healed on the Sabbath, they condemned him, which makes a mockery of what the Sabbath was instituted for, why God gave that law. And so we see, we need to understand how this applies to us by understanding also what is the lesson of manna. Later on in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God actually tells us what the manna is for. And you hear this verse, I know you can't read it, but you know, that's why I always say I like that big <laughs> screen in the cinema. You can actually read the, the stuff that's out there. Let me read it to you. And it says this, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That manna was given and you know, taught to them, the Sabbath principle was taught to them, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That we need to understand that, you know, it's our dependence upon God is why He gives us the Sabbath, to teach us that it is God on whom we ultimately depend. But I want you to see the passage from Exodus 16 because the last couple of verses are very interesting. At the end, after all this thing with manna, Moses said to Aaron, get a jar, fill it with two quarts of manna, which is one person's portion, right? Remember? Uh, uh, it's an omer actually in the Hebrew, and, but they, someone did the calculation. It's two quarts, it's two liters, okay, worth of omer. And uh, then put it in a sacred place before the Lord to preserve it for all future generations. Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He eventually placed it in the Ark of the Covenant in front of the stone tablets. What are the stone tablets? Ten Commandments inscribed with the terms of the covenant. That's what I'm saying. The manna was there to tell us that God is with us. That's what the Ark of the Covenant signified. The presence of God. Right? We see that right throughout the Old Testament. So it's His law and His provision we see clearly put before the people of God to remind them of who they depend on and who is in whom they are to put their trust. And that is the word that we are to live by. But, you know, let's fast forward a bit from Deuteronomy 8. That passage is so familiar to us. Why? Because remember when Jesus, before he began his uh, public ministry, was led into the wilderness. And after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, Satan appeared and tempted him three times. And what was that first temptation? said, you are hungry. And of course he was. Wouldn't he be hungry after 40 days, no food? I four hours, no food. I'm very hungry already. (laughs) 
I'm starting to think of dinner. You know, 40 days, I can't imagine. But remember how the people of God, the first Israel responded. In the midst, they grumbled. And they, in a sense, sinned against God. And here, Satan tempted, you know, do like your forefathers did. Jesus, the true Israel, the true Son of God, came and He did what the first Israel could not do, what they failed to do, what they failed to keep in that first covenant. And His answer to Satan, who told him, turn these stones into bread, He said to him, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And basically, Jesus was pointing back to the Sabbath principle that was taught when, you know, the Lord fed them manna in the wilderness, that God is our sustenance, that it is in Him that we put our faith and our trust. And we see, of course, that was Jesus' life, so much so that when He reached the end of His life in that garden of Gethsemane, where, you know, he was praying and asking, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But the heart that he had replied, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we see the obedience of Jesus that went all the way to the cross. His faith and trust and belief in God and his word took him to that ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. And that's why the Apostle Paul teaches us that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That the law ultimately points us to Jesus Christ. The law shows us how we fall short, how all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we need a deliverer because the wages of sin is death. But the gift that God gives us is eternal life because Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus was the end of the law. Jesus, you know, uh, uh, did everything the law required and then His righteousness was then given to us. That's what grace is. That's what the gospel is. And that's what this passage in Hebrews 8 is really talking about. You know, Paul, in uh, not Paul, but the writer of Hebrews says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And he's quoting really from Jeremiah. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. Right? They disobeyed time and time again. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Instead, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the law in our hearts is really Jesus in our heart. Because the law represented the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant. You remember that? And now, you know, Jesus is the, he's the Word made flesh. The ten words have been made flesh. The one who has obeyed every single one of them has been made flesh and dwelt amongst us. But not only that, He now dwells within us. That He comes and lives, and they shall not teach each other, his, each one his neighbor, 
and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And here it is, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And this was a prophecy pointing to the cross and the finished work of Jesus on the cross, the end of the law. And it's no accident, I believe, that the church today, we celebrate our Sabbath on what is literally the eighth day. Right? The first six days are uh, from Sunday to Friday. And the seventh day, the Sabbath, is actually Saturday. So the eighth day means you've gone around one cycle. The next day is Sunday. That's when we now worship God and we consider it our Sabbath. Why do we do that? It's because it was on the first day of the week that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And we know from Scripture that the resurrection symbolizes the new creation that each and every one of us is promised. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. That God is recreating recreation, right? Is literally to recreate. And that's what we remind ourselves on the Sunday, what we do when we come here and we place Him in the highest place. We say, you are God and I am not that I need you absolutely. And that's why we come and we worship the Lord on this day and why it's so important that we do worship God on the Sabbath. You know, I reproduced uh, an article written by a pastor who is based in China on Jehoshaphat and the coronavirus. You can read that uh, uh, in your own time. If you can't read it because it's too small, there's a link at the bottom. You know, click on the link or go and find the link and go ahead and look at the actual article itself. It's from the Gospel Coalition. But towards the end, where is my... I don't know where I put it. Give me a... Ah, yeah, thanks. I'll give it back to you later. Right? The lesson he drew from Joseph, and it's fascinating, I absolutely agree with it, is to trust God with your fears, then encourage others to trust God, and then call out to God and remember God's salvation. But he ends then with the act of worship. And if you know the story of Jehoshaphat, when they worshipped, God set an ambush against the enemy and defeated all the foes. But there's a line in there towards the end. Uh, it's like the third to last paragraph. He says this. You know, God never commanded Jehoshaphat to worship. Jehoshaphat did that of his own free will, of his own conviction. Why? Because worship isn't a strategy for getting God to act. It's a response because we know He has acted and He will continue to act. And this is what it looks like when we seek the Lord. In other words, worship is a response to the fact that God has delivered and He will deliver. That in this time of need, you know, God is saying to us, relax, I've got this. Coronavirus, relax. I've got this. Recession? Relax. I've got this. Now, I want to say a word to you. I don't want to make light of what is happening 
in uh, society at large. I'm really glad you're here, and it's easy for us to sometimes get caught up in the fear. That's what's been happening, you know. The fear is gripping a lot of people, and that's why they're behaving in ways which are, you know, just not, not, not very uh, socially conscious, let alone Christian. The hoarding, the buying things up, you know, and I've read how people, uh, we can laugh, lah. people running out of toilet paper, cannot find toilet paper, that's not so bad, there's water, okay, I tell you first, huh? <laughs> no paper, won't die. But there are others who are diabetics who need to, you know, inject insulin, they need alcohol wipes, can't find alcohol wipes anywhere. Because they cannot find hand sanitizer, people bought up all the alcohol wipes because they're so terrified. We, as Christians, have a different set of values. And the Sabbath principle tells us that. It tells us that we have a God who has delivered us. Amen? I ask you, what's the worst thing that can happen to you if you contract the coronavirus? What's the worst thing? You will die. For me to live is Christ. And to die is? What is that to fear? Seriously, as Christians, I'm not making light of death in a way. Death is a horrible thing, but for those of us who are in Christ, our eternity is assured. We don't look to death as something fearful. But it's where we are reunited with Christ in eternity and with all our loved ones who have gone before us as well. It's a great reunion in heaven. And so, we ought to be marching to the beat of a different drum. You know, many of us, I think, have acted in ways that we need to repent of, not least of which how we have treated the Sabbath. But even in the midst of coronavirus, maybe you are the ones that have been hoarding toilet paper. And you go to uh, your office tomorrow and your uh, um, colleague says, I, uh, I can't get any toilet paper, don't know how. Let me suggest you don't have to admit that you hoarded toilet paper. Say, I tell you what, let me give you one packet of toilet paper. <laughs> Release your stash because God gives more than enough. And actually we see that in the book of Acts. That's what the church did. You know, those who had more, they gave to those who had need. Because they understood that God provides. That we can put our trust in Him. We don't have to worry and take care of ourselves and, you know, say, the rest of you are on your own. That's how the world thinks. But we as Christians are different. Because we see a God who provides. Amen? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But Lord, beyond just keeping a day free of work, it is a day in which we recognize that you are the Lord, our God, who has delivered us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And I pray, Lord, that you continue to reform our hearts so that we not be squeezed into the mold of this world, 
but we be transformed into the likeness of your Son. And I pray that as we are discipled by your Word, that, Lord, we will give off such a different fragrance in the world around us. And, Lord, we are blessed and we receive your grace so that we can be a blessing and channels of your grace to a world that is graceless and that is living in fear. I pray, Lord, that in this season of anxiety and deep anxiousness, that, Lord, our trust in you will make such a difference to the people around us. That it will give us opportunities to share the good news of what you have already done for each and every one of us. Help us, Lord, to take these lessons and not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word also. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we declare our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed.